very much for joining us. Uh, welcome, Laiti from Fitas, from Elders, from the world. Ismail Hadin, congratulations on the publication of your fabulous new book, Too White to be Colored, Too Colored to be Black. Um, I hope, how has it been received? Um, tell us first. Huh? Lots of people I know are talking about it. I, I, I think it's been received, uh, it's well received. Um, but one of the interesting things about the book is I have found out more about the impact and the reception of the book by reading what people have written about, about the book than uh, my own writing of the book. Uh, I have a very bad habit, and I shouldn't say it publicly, so um, uh, I, if, you, if, you, if you repeat it, I'll say that you're alive. I'm still alive. Um, is is I don't I don't read the things I write. I almost never read, so I haven't read the book. Um, but one of my friends, one well, of our colleagues, Chris um, uh, wrote uh, Chris Roper wrote a piece on the book and I think he nailed it. He, he, he got, he did a better job at what I thought I did. So really? I think it, it's been received very well. What did he say? I haven't read his review yet. He, he basically said that if you look for the, you know, the, the heart of our problems, um, you can look everywhere and you can find things everywhere. But if you want to understand this crisis, read this book. Uh, so that's more or less what he said. Um, and I was shocked because, you know, I, I, I didn't really like the idea of writing a memoir. Um, I saw I, that from yeah. the opening. You were, you were uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I received a, a commission to write a book two years ago. And um, I, I, then COVID happened and I couldn't finish it up. It was it, it's, it was going to be a good book, not because I would write it, but because it was a good topic. Um, so I abandoned that and had to cancel that contract. But this book, it looks like it's been received well and people actually understand it. There are, to be honest, there are probably 20 people um, who are uncomfortable with uh, some of the things I've written in it. I'm, come, I'm quite sure, and, and we, we'll get to that as we go along. Obviously, I'm interested in how your lovely family received the book, because when you write a memoir like this, it's not only um, Ismail Hadin's book, it's the entire family um, who, who, who is showcased in this way. What, what have they thought about it? Have they had a chance to read it? I know it's quite. Those, those are those are among the those are among the twenty people who you know, who are not going to like yes. it, okay. and, and, and who have already said that um, the things that you know I shouldn't have said. And um, but what I did was I with this book I stayed with the truth, um, and there were things. I think, uh, you know, in retrospect, you know, I'm highly critical of um, my father, um, but I cannot, it, it's, it's, you know, there's one thing having principles and it's another one sticking to those principles and holding on to them. So if I have principles and I oppose spousal abuse, I can't turn my, you know, I can't turn away from it if it happens in my own family. So, um, I, I then, you know, I, I made critical, um, I wrote critically about my father 
um, and because he was abusive. Um, and that made but a lot of people uncomfortable. Was that difficult to do? Was that difficult for you to do? I can imagine it was difficult for the family to see that committed to um, black and white. Well, you know, it wasn't difficult for me at all. Uh, I, you know, I must, um, I must confess, Feriel, this book was not difficult to write. It was not emotional. It was, um, it was not, it was not cathartic. Um, I just let the the act of writing take over, uh, and you know, th there's nothing in the book that shocked me other than the fact that I uh, I I referenced somebody, and I never realized that I would someday reference him. It's Arthur Kusler. Oh. Uh, so I just and but I let it go. I just kept on going with it and, and let it run. But so the book was well received. There are some people who are unhappy about it, especially on the faith part and on the uh, the fa family part. But, you know. Um, I, so let's, let's, go, let's go back a little bit. You, you're born in the 70s um, in Fitas. Um, describe to us a little bit about what that life is like. Huh? Well, well, you just made me 20 years younger. I was born in Fitas in the, in the, in the 50s. In the 50s, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking no, about when the forced <laughs> removals happened there. Huh? In 58. Well, the thing is, the forced removals started, were legislated uh, round about then, and they uh, uh, had already started moving people from Sophia Town and Fitas and relocated uh, the Indian people to Lens and the colored people to El Dorado Park and the Malay people to El Dorado Park. So it had already started, but um, it, it, it was in phases and it came to a, a conclusion in the, uh, uh, in the early seventies, uh, by, by which time we had already um, settled in El Dorado Park. Now, right. my, mine was a particularly disturbing uh, uh, story as was the rest of my family. Um, because I was born in 58, but I believe in 59, we met, we, we went uh, to live with my uh, father's father, my paternal grandfather in Grahamstown. And oh. then we came back in 61 to Johannesburg. We got a house in River Lee. And then uh, my father, my paternal grandfather wanted us back in Port Elizabeth. And then at that point, because his house was in the center of town, he was also uh about to be moved to a colored area. Uh, he lived in this house in the, in, in the middle of Grahamstown for as long as I can, anyone wow. can remember. And then we moved back to Fitas into a single room. Uh, and then after that, so my schooling was then interrupted several times. And then by 68 or 69, we moved to Eldorado Park and got our little matchbox house. And we finally got a house that had electricity, I didn't think, no. It had electricity, but it didn't have running water or maybe had one tap inside the house. So, yeah. so we moved a lot between 58 and 70, say 70. And uh, by 71, I was sent to live with my family in district six. And that was the last stage, the last phase of district, district six removals. So I encountered that in Fitas, I encountered that in Grahamstown, and wow. I encountered that in, in, in District 6 and, as and well. And how did that shape you? Because I remember my family being similarly moved from place to place to place as the bulldozers came closer and closer, no. or otherwise just the law was 
was implemented <clears throat> and you only recognize decades on about um, how that instills almost a fear of constant risk and fear. How, how did those years shape you? The other side, of course, is that <clears throat> people have very, um, sometimes nostalgic and glorious memories of it yeah, as this uh, melting pot and togetherness uh, where you could run from neighbor to neighbor. That certainly um, the founding story of my brothers who were uh, who grew up there at about the same time as you. Yeah, yeah. You know, you touch on a, a very, very important issue there of the communal spirit, and and we've just. Um, uh, I shouldn't make a big deal of it because I live in a remote pit, but we've right. just been through Ramadan, and in Ramadan the communities all share, you know, and and. And, and there's a great sense of community um, during Ramadan, but that that is broken. That was broken every time by the Group Areas Act. So you're not just moving people; you're disrupting communities, you're disrupting families. And so, so going back then, that has those, those disruptions and those um, have caused a lot of. Uh, sort of uncertainty and instability in my own life. Um, huh. th that's the one area. And then the area of my race has caused me to, you know, which is what the book is supposedly yeah. about. That has also caused a lot of insecurity. But you also make a good point in that we, we didn't know at the time what all this meant uh, to us, what all this, but now we can look back at it and we can reflect on what it has done to us. Absolutely. And, yeah. I thought maybe at, at this point you could read so that we can get to the heart of the title, um, the first passage which, you may, you, which you've chosen for us. I have a couple of my own which, which I'll get to. Um, I want to read a really small, a short one first yes. and, a and a longer one later. Um, but I think this is... Uh, I'll start with, uh, and he, this is it. The first three months of my life were hell for my mother. She always reminded me that as a baby, I had four major ailments, double pneumonia. She always emphasized the double, meningitis, pertussis, this is whooping cough, and a fourth that has always eluded me. It was bitterly cold that winter I was born. We had no heating, no indoor plumbing or sanitation. To get to the toilet, you had to step out onto the street, walk a couple of meters and then enter a narrow alley at the end of which was a backyard where the communal ablution facility served up to five families. After I was born and became ill, my sister once recalled how at the age of five, she had to run several blocks to get the doctor to attend to me. Parenthetically, a few months after writing the first draft of this chapter, my brother Farouk called me to tell me that Dr. Musa, quote, who saved your life, close quote, had died. It was in the middle of COVID. My mother often told me the story about when I was three months old, Dr. Musa closed his case and told my parents, there is nothing more that can be done for him. What you have to do now is pray. He put on his heavy gray coat and hat, turned to look at my mother and said, "Assalamu alaikum." then walked from the room. The combined effect of those illnesses would plague me for the rest of my life. The period before my 19th birthday was especially bad. I had chronic bronchitis two or three times a year. In January, 1979, 
I returned from my peripatetic life and went to Coronationville Hospital in the township established in 1937 under the monarchy of King George VI. Corrie, as we called it, was reserved for colored and Indian people and Baraguana Hospital in Soweto for African people. It was at Baraguana that I got my first pair of glasses at the age of 13. Anyway, at Corrie, I was diagnosed with bronchiectasis by a young intern. Early on the morning of the surgery, she sat on the edge of my bed and started talking about things like a pneumonectomy, a thoracotomy, a lobectomy, intercostal drainage. Stop, I said, explain to me in English what you will be doing with me. All I remember now was that they would cut open my chest, remove my lower left lobe of my left lung. That lobectomy thing she mentioned. My left lung, I thought, was something next to my heart. And in my mind, I thought, so they're just going to push my heart aside and cut off a piece of my lung, push my rib cage back together and stitch me up. After that, the doctor explained, they would put me on a type of machine to drain fluids from my chest. A few weeks after the surgery, the doctor was complimented on her diagnosis. Once the piece of lung had been examined, it was established that her original diagnosis was accurate. What a story that is. Um, and it, was it difficult to write with that kind of memory, intimacy, and, and also detail? No, no, it wasn't. I, one of the things I, actually, let me tell you, one of my fears, one of my fears, many fears, is that I will, uh, I will uh, stop relying on my memory. Uh, I, I, I happen to have a good memory. And um, so it was very easy to recall that because I played it in my, my head so many times. Um, I mean, if you've lived as, as I have, you know, with uh, one lung and chronic bronchitis and, and all that, um, th th that's why, one of the reasons why I'm so isolated here in Pringle Bay. Yes, is I, I just, wanted to ask, how did you come through COVID with, those, I, with that condition? I just, I just didn't see anybody. I didn't let anybody into my house. I didn't let in anybody into my home. I didn't speak to family. I didn't go anywhere, you know, and that's how I've just stayed at home. Then I do want to ask you, so in El Dorado Park, and, and I'll read um, a, a part here, um, I'll get to it straight after. But in El Dorado Park, you do <clears throat> write of the rape scene, which is not something that I've ever heard you speak about or write no. about. No. Um, could you tell us about that? And, and again, um, <clears throat> what was it like to trawl that memory bank and feel all that trauma again? I don't know uh, about the trauma. Um, I, you know, I, I, I say this with deep sincerity. Uh, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. But I sometimes feel I'm dead inside. Um, hmm. You know, I, my, my parents died uh, six, six and seven years ago, respectively. I didn't go to their funerals. I didn't mourn. I didn't cry, you know. And so <clears throat> I think this has to do with, the upbringing when they, when you're told, you know, you shouldn't cry and, um, but I do cry. I mean, you know, I, I cry easily, but um, it's, it's something like, you know, 
we, 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 we hear so much about this physical and sexual violence that we've become inured to them. But I did have, I did have for 20 years after that, I did have serious problems in that part of my body until I had surgery when the doctors told me that that was the cause of it. But it, it, that, it, that is it was a, a fistula and that was it, quite, it was a fistula, quite a yeah. part of the book to, to read yeah. it. And I must say, unexpected for me, because I thought it was going to be a book about um, identity and race. And it, in, a, in a way it, that is, but it's also not. And I suppose yeah. the, the moment does allow us to write more more openly about things which may have been kept in the closet or, or been objects yeah. of shame before. And I, I think it is really, really brave of, of you to do so. Um, I want to go now to the chapter that's called skin because I think this really gets to the heart of it. So I've worn my fair skin like a legend cloak throughout my life. It has been the cause of beatings, ridicule and ill judgments, rape too, but also of intrigue, insight, and laughter. It satisfied nobody. I've often wished that I were dark-skinned like my brother Farouk or my sister Fairuz. Dark skin's just more beautiful. But I've also longed for blacker skin, mainly for political and social reasons. I wanted to fit into my community. I wanted to look Malay or colored. Never wanted to explain why I referred to myself as black. It should not matter. Um, and for me, I find that when when I go to Bosmont, as I yeah. as I do or, or speak to people, the common refrain and and wrote this in the top of the review of your book is that we're too white to be colored and we're too colored to yeah. um, to be black. Um, and so I thought it's going to be a book about colored identity, but it's in fact mm -hmm. a book which issues that. It's about somebody mm -hmm. who says, I don't want these things. Yeah. Um, th that's quite um, counter-narrative and, yeah. and brave yeah. of you. Huh? Yeah. Well, I, I want to say two things here. Um, the book is, um, uh, on, on one level, um, the, the, the simple, I, I will simplif simplify it. Uh, and I think I, I stated this in the front uh, at the start. I'm not a very interesting person, but I've lived in interesting times. Um, so, the, but the book is about those times and how they've shaped me and how I've responded to them. So that is what it's about. And then to put it pretentiously, and and I avoid. I think I avoided this. There's a a, sc a school of philosophical thought that. Um, we 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 are we are um, how does it go? F freedom is what you do with what's been done to you. So in other words, so I go through it. You know, I was born and then made a Muslim. I was then told I was Malay. I was then told I was coloured, and so these things were made of me, and I constantly struggled and battled and fought against what was made of me to make something else of me, something better, something better than. And, and that is a, one of those philosophical texts that I, I have um, referred to very subtly in the book. So there is a sort of deeply, I guess, philosophical thing that runs through it. But the point is, it is it's about me, honestly, and this isn't even false modesty, 
you know, I'm not an interesting person, but I've lived in interesting times. They have shaped me and I have fought back against it. So that's what the book that's, is about. That's really, um, I, I want to unpack that because there's a lot in it, is that mm. these were imposed identities and mm. you decided when that you no. were not going to have any of this and no. that freedom for you meant making crafting your own path yeah. um so can you tell me that's that's not easy to do in a country like ours where you are no, very much shaped by received identity in fact in the world huh? yeah, no <clears throat> absolutely true somebody uh, i spoke to somebody the other day um and um i think it was that in real life um uh, <laughs> la launch where somebody where i explained that the first time uh, this shook me was, I think I was 17, and I visited a friend of mine uh, who worked at the old Greaterman's store in, in Johannesburg, and she was on the shop floor, and I walked up to her, and I started talking to her, and a white woman came running towards us, and she started speaking uh, in a foreign language, and I, I turned and looked to her, and my friend said, no, it's okay, he's come to see me. And she said, oh, so I'm so sorry. I thought you were Italian and you needed help. And, wow. and, I, went, and I went, wow, I'm Italian. And I have been mistaken for almost everything under the sun. Um, you know, I've had to tell people, I, no, I'm not Portuguese. People have thought I was Israeli. People have thought I was French. People have thought I was, you know, they're everything under the sun. And I will just always come back to, I'm just a colored man. Okay, yeah, there's the Malay thing, but I'm, you know, I'm just a colored. So, you know, a couple of years ago, I read a, a really fascinating book by Afwa Hirsch, the British writer who wrote a book called British. <clears throat> mm. And she responded, her basically, it's a response to her constantly being asked, so what are you? And then she would say, I'm... British, I'm, you know, from London. And they would say, but what are you really? Where are you from? And she'll say, I'm from London. But the point is, you know, her mother's from Ghana, her father's from, you know, from London. So there was always this, where are you really from? Yeah. And, and this is one of the spaces we inhabit. People like you and like you and I, we will go around the world and they'll think we're from Afghanistan or we're from here. Well, with me, it's always European, I'm afraid. And uh, and the fact that my last name uh, is 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 uh, visually so French, there have been some fascinating stories. I played a game of ice hockey once, and I watched it being played back in French uh, yeah. in Canada, and they kept referring to Lagardian this and Lagardian that, and Lagardian <laughs> scores a goal, and I would go, who are they? talking about that's me and, and then <laughs> and then you know so i stopped i've stopped questioning i just say yeah please just go ahead call me whatever you want to call me you know and and, and that's when, when you go to um i think changi airport um, yeah yeah yes 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 you say lagadin you're trying to <laughs> i'm trying to say it's it's lagadin and they would look at me yeah i pronounce it properly and they say but that was that was actually funny and a bit naughty and a bit um just because it was you know i've i've been lucky i should say i've visited very 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 many countries and I've crossed very many borders, but the only border I was ever stopped 
and questioned for being a terrorist or a suspected terrorist was at Singapore. Because the guy wow. looked at me, he said, your name is Ismail. And I said, yes. He says, where did you get that name? And I said, my mother gave it to me. So that was the cheeky part. And then I realized, hold on, I was onto something nice here. Because what I didn't tell them that I was a guest of one of the senior Polish, the founding fathers of Singapore. You know, I Bahati. went just... No, well, no, no, that's Malaysia. That's Malaysia. Sorry, I yep. my <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I kind of, I, they went through the motions, took me to a room, questioned me. And uh, they, I was at the National Planning Commission at the time. And they said, so where do you work? I said, in the South African presidency. They look and say, it says here, National Planning Commission. I said, it's in the presidency. Oh, then why don't you have a diplomatic passport? I said, well, uh, this is a private visit. And right after 45 minutes, I said to them, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm going to visit Mr. So-and-so. That's whom I'm staying with. And these guys, their eyes almost popped from their heads and they left the room and they came back very quickly and said, oh, we're so sorry, sir, please take your passport, enjoy Singapore. And, <laughs> <laughs> but so I get stopped all the time. I get stopped and, all the time. Um, I was interested in, in a part of the book where you say, like me, I'd always described myself as being black because yeah, yeah. I grew up um, with the philosophy of Steve yeah. Biko that, that all oppressed peoples in South Africa were black. I, I find that when I say so today, I just get laughed out of the way. I know. I, I know. The room. Um, so do you um, use the term colored like in the way it's used in, in the US or what do you mean when you describe yourself that way? You know, I am actually quite exhausted by it all. I'm exasperated. You know, I, I, I felt, you know, colored is the identity that the apartheid government gave me. Uh, Malay is the identity that my parents gave me. Uh, being black is a political identity that I chose. Um, but it became, it became a joke when I would say we black people. And I think somewhere in the book I wrote that when I said we black people to a group of friends in Germany, they said, what do you mean by we black people? You're white. So then I had to explain everything to them, the Malay story. And then they bought me a DNA kit for uh, as a gift. Yeah. And, uh, and unfortunately, it showed that I was... <laughs> It showed that yeah. I was a hundred percent from Southeast Asia, and you know, <laughs> it, it is. I'm the haplogroup O, and it's you know all from China. Is that it why is. you felt comfortable there? Do you because you write about that in the book? I do feel comfortable, but I also feel comfortable in Brazil, okay. and I also and I also feel comfortable in in London. But that's because um, I, I don't know. It's just London is just. I feel coming in Brazil, in London, and people always ask me where I felt most, which country I like the most. And I will always say the country I feel most at peace with myself is Iceland. Is Iceland? And, Why yeah. is that? I don't know. It's just they don't have a military. And I, I go and sit on a rooftop um, and I watch the, 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 um, the, the Aurora, uh, Aurora Borealis, what's it called? The Northern Lights. And, you know, I'm not a religious person, but that doesn't mean I'm not spiritual. And you look at the northern lights and you look at the sky and you, and you realize this is what I'm part of. I'm a very, very small part of this huge universe. Yeah. 
and and that is a great feeling. That's so, lovely. What is it hard at, at the end? You write off non-racialism, even though it's a constitutional yes. pillar, and it's obviously yeah. something you come to after enormous <clears throat> pain, but also thought. Was, was yes. that tough? Because some of us can say, oh, it's really challenged, and it's how do you describe But actually, you say, come on, give it up. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's a, a, I think it, I think it was a public relations exercise by the African National Congress. I think it is a great ideal. Um, it is something to aspire to, but I think it has failed. It's failed. I, I, I actually came upon this uh, analogy uh, two or three days ago. It's like an hourglass, where um, at the top there are all these. Um, uh, races and ethnicities and language groups and the ANC said no we must all get together and we must come together into a non-racial group and then we had the election and then everybody just went their own separate ways again so now we're all colored and Indian and black again so I think um, I think it was a public relations exercise I think that um, it was convenient for the ANC to do the uh, to, to 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 speak of non-racialism uh, without having to, you know, if you want truly be non-racial, then why do you classify people? If you want to be truly non-racial, why do you ask people to fill in a form to say they're colored or Indian or black? If you they will you know, answer that the only way you can. Um, ensure that you are reaching the social development goals or a more generalized prosperity is that you have to um, deal with your past. That, that's always been the answer. And, and from the <clears throat> National Planning Commission, yeah. you know that better than I do. Huh? Yeah. Well, there is a constitutional obligation to, to quote, roll back the in injustices of the past. But, you know, uh, I think it was Nietzsche who said that, if you know, while you're fighting monsters, uh, make sure you don't become one of the monsters, and I think that I think that's what become. It's in in its application that that it has become so. Uh, and and one of the things that is I that I found most disturbing is uh, very many people who have benefited from the past continue to do so, and they uh, they will always come and say, oh, but now it's non-racialism. You know, we've we've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, you know, we've, you know, Mandela's blessed us all. And you and you think to yourself, no, these problems stay with us. You know, we are still in the middle of these problems. We're still suffering this. So I Is write it, it off. You see that nobody took up the mantle of what non-racialism should mean. It, it's certainly not the, the latter-day interpretation of, of race blindness no. um, at no. all but it's almost like there was no one to scoop up that bottom of the hourglass and and yeah. shape it um, yeah. probably but probably but I have uh, I have quite closely studied the from from Algeria all the way down to um, to Zimbabwe I've looked at the way that non-Africans were forced out of society from the Pizza Noir in, in Algeria to the non to the to the whites in, in Zimbabwe, <clears throat> and how mixed race people are marginalized. And I I have a German friend who is married to an African uh, a Nigerian guy, and 
he she said that uh, she explained that when they go to Nigeria, nobody even bothers that the children are mixed race. It's in South Africa where they where where it becomes an issue. So I I think I think that you know I've written it off completely. I think it was a ploy to get uh, the votes. It was a public re uh, relations exercise to. Um, to give the world the impression that the ANC is dedicated to democracy and non-racialism. And uh, so it was basically just good propaganda. That's, that's and, quite a finding. I, I'm wondering if this is a good point for you to read your second passage for us. And please, uh, to our guests, uh, do ask questions in the Q&A or um, wherever's convenient and, and I'll find them. You stopped at, a, I was going to read the chapter, uh, chapter six on skin. Uh, so I'm going to resume where you stopped. Sure. Right. So <clears throat> you stopped it. It should not matter. Yes. So I go, race, they say, is a social construct. But when you are tied to a tree at 12 and beaten by seven other children because you are the white kid with the green eyes, quote, that is why the teachers like you and you get the highest marks, close quote. Pain, hurt, humiliation, degradation and embarrassment are physical and emotional pains. They are not social constructs. It gets worse the next day when you have to return and face the same children, the same teachers, only this time your body is black and blue from the beatings of the day before. That's when they start again with the taunting and the mung beans in pea shooters. Children can be cruel. In the opening sequence of Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, a group of children tortures a little creature by dropping it into a mass of ants, then setting the entire lot alight. Children can be cruel. When I was about 12, a group of us chased, quote, the bastard, we called him, across a field, down gullies, and across filthy springs of effluent that ran through our township. We yelled and shouted abuse and curses. The bastard ducked and dived. The rocks we pelted him with never hit him. We screamed and shouted like savages, bearing sticks to the beast. Then he disappeared into a large concrete drain pipe that led the water under the golden highway. In a flash, he was gone. We laughed. He was an albino. At the time, we thought that albinos were not human like us. They were ghosts, freaks. Did you know they don't die? One day they just walk away and you never see them again, one of us opined. Someone else said, the bastards are scared of the sun. Where did they go at night? Someone else asked. We turned back laughing and jostling as teenagers do. Then it was my turn. It's 1970. We're living in El Dorado Park. It's the start of a new school year. I'm 12 years old. On the first day of school, the teacher who taught me English the previous year, that substandard grade determined by the Department of Colored Education, called me from the front of the class to deliver a recitation, a poetry reading. I recite Daffodils by William Wordsworth. It remains a special poem to me, even though it sometimes brings back bitter memories. After that day, after school on that day of my recital, a girl in my class, the one with the darkest skin, and who had spluttered through her recitation, evoking laughter and ridicule from classmates, had three of her friends hold me down while she kicked me in the face and in the stomach and in my crotch. 
You think you're better than everyone, don't you? She shouts. She is incensed. Her nostrils flare. Her eyes seem like they are popping from her head. I'm scared. I cry. Your fucking green eyes and your white skin. That's why the teacher always asks you to read or to write on the board. Your green eyes, you fucking dog. Her fists relentlessly pounded my head and face. I cry. I get home bloody with swollen eyes. And when he gets home from work, my father gives me a beating for fighting in the street. He sends me to bed without dinner. I'm not too disappointed. My mother made stewed cabbage for dinner, but I'm still starving. I want to add just one paragraph that I, um, that you might find interesting. Um, During the early 1990s, when the uh, negotiation period uh, was underway, it was really hard for us to get access to the ANC for interviews. Um, So in 1991, I traveled to uh, Zimbabwe um, to attend. So let let me read this little section. The ANC was difficult to deal with and carried itself as the putative government of the country with an attendant aloofness and notions of exceptionalism and superiority. On one occasion in about August, 1991, when the PAC and the ANC were in Harare to discuss the formation of a patriotic front, I was given an interview with Paolo Jordan. Sitting in a corner of a hotel lobby, Jordan, he often smelled of mint or liniment, leered at me with apparent disgust. Why did Sowetan not send a black journalist? I am black, I'm colored, I replied. Why did Sowetan not send an African journalist, Jordan said. The interview was a flop. It was the other part I was going to get you um, to read. And those, they're not incidents, occasions. Do they make you somebody else? Do they re-sculpt you um, into the Ismail that we know? (coughs) I also want to add a question because it also seems to me that at the Sowetan is where you actualize into who you were always going to be because there you find a place that just, sees you as a sharp-tongued lighty that was thanks to Agri-Cluster, the, the editor yeah. of the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Agri employed me. Agri, he specifically called me and said, <laughs> probably shouldn't have. Anyway, he said, I was uh, coming to the, the close of my work at the Weekly Mail and I've been running around the country. And he called me and said, uh, Melaiti, he used to call, call me Melaiti always. He used to say, Melaiti, but... But what are you doing with the white the white people? Come and work for us. I want you here. Um, so I went to work for Sowetan. And within a year, I, I was promoted to political correspondent. And that caused a lot of problems in, in, in the newsroom because very many of my colleagues thought that I got the job because I was white. And not specifically, they specifically said I was holding black back black progress. So there again, you know, I got this thing about you're only doing well because you're white. And Ferial, the problem with that is, you know, what this book has made, has taught me uh, two, two months after actually writing it, is it, it helped me understand why I'm so angry always, why I'm, I, 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 never, I never really do well at anything um, 
because I second guess myself a lot. I second guess myself because I think, uh, how am I? How did I get to the London School of Economics? I'm just a colored kid. You know, um, I think in the book I mentioned that we were told at the start when I was uh, for the second graduate, anyway, at the start of uh, one academic year, we were told that the top 5% students of the top 5% universities uh, in the world act uh, end up at, at the London School of Economics and Oxford, of course. <clears throat> and I really had a, a crisis, a bit dramatic, but I really thought to myself, then how did I get here? I'm just a colored kid from El Dorado Park. So you end up, you end up beyond in imposter syndrome, right? It's, it's, it is, that's what it's, it's, so you second guess yourself constantly. You, even if you get the answer right, you, 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 you think, oh my God, you know, is this right? And, and am I, you know, you, you're always hesitant about doing well because you can't actually accept that you're smart or you really worked hard for this. And so that, explains why a lot of my relationships have broken up, why my uh, education was so difficult, and why even today, you know, if I write a column, um, why I don't struggle with it intellectually as much anymore, or writing. But, you know, when I think about it, I think about, you know, I always, it's always there, it always, it's always with you, that you are this fake, you're just phony, you're just there because you're white. And so that is very debilitating, I must confess. It's very a debilitating. Theme and I, I must say, I hadn't realized that, but I'll come back. I just want to take Adina Jansen's question. Would you say the experience of colored people in South Africa is born out of toxic binary thinking, white versus black? Is it even possible to renounce the binary in favor of a true spectrum, or do we need an entirely different framework? I think we need a, 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 an entirely different framework, um, but I don't think it's going it, it is up to the government. I don't think it's up to the ruling party. Uh, because I will say this, at the moment, this country is held together by um, so, civil society, that, you know, by the, by the media, by the corporations, by uh, you know, by, by people on the street, by, by gift no, of the givers, you know, and the, while the ANC is having their fight at the moment, we're all trying to keep this country together. So I think, so a new um, di dichotomy, uh, a new system is necessary, but I regret to say that uh, we haven't seen the worst of this re-racialization and the politics of revenge coming from the combination of the far of the EFF and the our radical economic transformation group. I don't think we've seen the end of that yet. Um, May I ask how you understand the Patriotic Alliance, which was one of the breakthrough stories or parties of the local government election in November, and its its ethos um, is very much around coloured identity. Yeah. And it's quite a following, even though Gayton McKenzie was never somebody who really defined himself so in, in the past. Right? Yeah, yeah, but there, there's, there's been a development in the, I think it's in the last 48 hours of uh, an alignment between Henry Van, um, 
Heinrich Feinhardt and Afriforum. Yes. And it just adds to this. So what people are doing, there are institutionalizing the racial, the politics of race. And that is the problem. That's what uh, the problem that uh, how I would describe to your the the the, the person who wrote in. Um, it's 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 the institutionalizing. Um, one of the things you know, um, there one of the, one of the successes of apartheid has been that it has kept us apart. That we don't know each other. You know, I don't know. I, I can't speak Sepedi. I can't speak Zitsonga, and. That's because for 350 years, by now we should all be a, a melange, a mixture of everything, yet we're not. And, and it's not going to get any better any, any, anytime sooner, I think, because, you know, we have, you know, uh, this is not a good example, but it's an example. We have something called Heritage Day, which, which sounds nice. But on Heritage Day, uh, uh, 10 years ago, I, um, in jest, said, oh, my Khalsa friends are going to their Khalsa family. My Jewish friends are going to their Jewish families. Where am I going to? You know, I'm just a colored. Oh, I'm going to. Now, I could have said I'm going to my Malay family. But, you know, even that is such a, 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 a malleable concept and such an ill-defined. Did you feel like heritage by now should be something a little bit different? Did you expect that? No, actually, you know, I actually, I, I, I don't, I don't really blame people for seeking out their ethnic heritage, uh, because it has been denied us for so long. But we do fall us, those of us. Uh, let, let me use the 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 EFF language. Those of us who are non-African, we do fall in sort of a liminal space, and it's a space where we don't know whether we're coming or going. And that is what disturbs us so much. So if you look at all the indicators in the census, uh, the last census, and currently, you know, the, 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 in colored communities, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of unemployment, there's a lot of misery. And I think it has to do with that sense of unbelonging. And I just, I guess, uh, you know, I shouldn't be too pretentious about this, but I guess this unbelonging, I, it's, maybe that's what I'm giving, trying to give a voice to, uh, but I shouldn't complain. It certainly, it certainly yeah. comes through. I also yeah. want to speak before we start wrapping about your experience in the academies. Now, I know that you were bound when you, mm. I was so excited when you made Dean. Um, at Nelson Mandela University because it was a really transformative appointment. Mm -hmm. And then you also write about your experiences interviewing for a role at Stellenbosch. Um, no. Share with us some of what that's taught you about the state of our <clears throat> universities. Well, the, now, I, I'm bound by a confidentiality agreement, yes, so I can't talk about the Nelson Mandela agreement. So I'm going to talk in, in general. Hmm. Um, you know, transformation of the academy is basically twofold. It, it is, uh, there, there is the racial aspect and then there's the intellectual aspect. Um, so you hear people say, we're transformed. Look at all the black students we have. And then you think, then you say to them, but you're teaching them exactly the same things you've been teaching for years. So there's been no development of the curriculum there's been no uh, change in what we taught. 
so we still have this system by which um, here is a body of knowledge. If you make it through this body of knowledge, you are certified. You know, this, uh, the French sociologist uh, Pierre Bourdieu wrote a book about uh, called The Inheritors. And it's essentially universities uh, have the power to certify. So the minute you then buy into the system that which you're being taught, you're then okay. So the academy then remains predominantly white, but they remain predominantly cast within this Eurocentric uh, 19th century um, enlightenment uh, type uh, knowledge and scientism uh, where they've simply you know, forgotten or uh, ignored the rest of the world. But, but we have to put it in context is the university as we know it today, let's just talk about South Africa, was inherited from the Europeans. It is a European construct. And but and it has remained a European construct. So those are the things, those are the approaches that are necessary is to start engaging with these things. And you know, in, in my uh, my economics column uh, in business day, I start engaging with these things. So you start breaking out of the orthodoxy, you start breaking with and start bringing in alternative views, and that is the biggest fight. Um, now the, the Stellenbosch University is it a big, was, is it a big fight. Um, is he really, it, it's, really it's, good it's, huh? I can't tell you about that. Um, no, not at NNM, but generally it, in your opinion, because Mahmoud Mamdani was saying in 99, 2000 already, he was making yeah. a similar point. This was about yeah. African studies mm. and the way it was taught at, yeah. at UCT. Yeah, yeah. That's like, you know, uh, there's this meme that, you know, the, 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 the lions. Uh, I don't even know how it goes. You know, until the, the, the lions tell their own story, we can't believe the hunter's story of the lions. Um, I, I just mangle that. I don't know. But yeah, it is, a, it is a fight. And one of the things that happened to me was um, I am, a, my doctorate is in, uh, you yeah, know, I said economics and statistics and like all that kind of stuff. But my doctorate's in international political economy. Um, but I come from what's known as the, the critical tradition. Um, and I was invited, I inquired, let me, let me be polite about this. I inquired about a position and I was told, um, I don't meet the diversity requirements. So a white man told me I wasn't black enough to get a job in academia. <laughs> in the same correspondence, he says, oh, but you are one of those very, well, not very, he didn't say rare, but there are very few of us. Critical thinkers in international political economy, uh, don't you want to come and lead this discussion for us and give a lecture for two hours or an hour, an hour and 45 minutes or three hours, whatever? Um, so I said, sure, you know, it's bread and butter. So I went and did it. So uh, the students were so excited. There are students from Europe uh, and Scandinavia who literally said it was the best three hours they'd ever had, they'd had in two years at the university. So it was basically challenging orthodox thinking. And, and the, a very nice comment came from a woman who wore a hijab. And, and she said, I'm just glad that it was a person of color who blew our minds. Um, That's just wonderful. Yeah, and I just, uh, so apparently my mind is sharp enough 
but my skin color is not black enough. Um, that, that kind of gatekeeping <laughs> and race box thinking must have been perfectly alienating and, and, and made you furious. Is this part of the re reason that I detect through the book this ennui? Um, it, it's like a golden thread through it, mm. yet you've made these amazing accomplishments. I mean, you were the uh, you, you were Joe Stiglitz's speechwriter and assistant. I'm not sure exactly what the title was. Is all of that overshadowed um, by this feeling constantly being told you're not good enough, you're not white enough, not black enough? Yeah, no, that's you're absolutely correct. So you know, it's not just the being told you're not uh, black enough or not white enough. It's when you start self-doubting, and when you start second-guessing yourself because of this. So you know, I I have a plaque. I think I said it in the book. I'm not sure. I have a plaque that says um, that uh, I got a Teaching Excellence Award the, at the University of South Carolina, and I. Whenever I listen to some of our politicians um, who do performative politics talk about uh, their, 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 their degrees and things like that, I always remind myself that I got this teaching exercise excellence award from a 35,000 bo student body uh, because I was damn good, not because I was black. And that makes me feel good. It makes me feel that, yeah, maybe, maybe I know a thing or two. And then I come home. And you reduced. You are reduced to a second-class citizen. Uh, there was a, a actually a, a writer. Came back a, in 2011. 2011. Right. There's a there's actually a prominent writer who in in on Twitter. Um, I wish I'd saved the tweet. You know, I get death threats on Twitter. I get all sorts of. But he's he referred to non-African blacks. He said we always fail forward or we fail upwards. And I, I just wrote to him, I said, you know, you're looking for a new subaltern class here. And what you're doing is you're telling all uh, colored people that, you know, they're, they're, they're more privileged and therefore they should get less privilege. And it went on and on. And eventually I ignored him and he ignored me. And so, and, and he's a prominent writer and people love him. And, and but so, so deep but down it's there. A, it's a meta narrative. It's this very common one. Yeah. It's, um, it's very common. It's accepted. It's, it's deemed acceptable, but, you know, uh, it's, you can try as much as you like. You're not going to get past that. Hmm. That, that, that. That is sad that that's your conclusion. I do want to read a little bit about, because you, you such a fine um, political analyst of, of our country. I do want to read this bit I found here. Just your, your view on what's going to happen in our country, this fellow Jordans. Okay. Um, yeah, now in 2021, it is not outrageous to say we have crossed a moral threshold, an event horizon from which there is no return, no redemption, and even less forgiveness. Guilt and innocence, accountability, and the vaguest sense of humility have traded places with avarice, greed, senses of exceptionalism and purity, threatening pogroms against people considered to be non-African. How short and how shallow our memories have become. 
that is, you know, the, the, the pogroms and, you know, we, we go back, many people go back to this example. Um, and it's not a, you know, the Holocaust didn't start at Auschwitz. It started by identifying people as others, as identifying people as not belonging. Um, so that identifying, so you, you call out uh, Praveen Gordon as a, a, a non-African. Uh, and then at the, in the same breath, you say Africa belongs to the Africans. Uh, so you, it's, it's not very difficult to reach a conclusion. So Praveen Gordon has to go back to where he comes from. You know, I get ema emails telling me, go back to Asia. My cousin- I, I see the, the dangers um, of that, but I wonder where do you draw hope from or optimism, or do you just not see any, either in the world um, or, or in our country? You know, um, I, I draw hope, I draw hope from, I, it's a strange thing for me to say, because I'm not an individualist or nor do I believe in sort of atomistic individuals, but I draw hope from, um, individual people and um there's a there's a, a a woman for example in Milneton who volunteers as a i don't know what they call the person who lets kid, kids across the road at a, at a pedestrian yeah. crossing and she, she's a she's a white woman and she protects the black children who walk across the road now she doesn't do it because they're black and she's white she just does it because she cares about the lives of people and so it's people like that who give me hope. They give me a sense, you know, um, people ask me for advice and I can't give advice. So I always tell them what I, what I tell myself is, and, and, and it, it, I really believe in this, is never treat anyone as an end in themselves. Treat, never, sorry, never treat anyone as a means to an end. Treat them as an end in itself. You know, because That's if you good. treat people as a means to an end, you know, I do, I'm kind to you because I expect you to be kind to me. That's just wrong. You know, be nice and just be nice. Be nice for the sake of being nice. So treat people as ends in themselves and not as a means to an end. So I think Thank if you we followed that. Thank you very much for a beautiful insight into your book, Too White to be Colored, Too Colored to be Black. I really would recommend this. I hope that there is going to be another part, an extension of it, because you have a lot more learning to do. I'm looking forward to hearing what exciting plans you have. And congratulations. Um, on thank you. Well, thank you very much. Really well, it's an ex ex excellent work from you. Thank you. And Thanks thank you very to much. everybody who joined us this evening. Yes, thank you very Good much night. for joining us. Good night. Good night.